Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Caged In, the Nicolas Cage podcast. On this special bonus episode for Halloween, I'll be talking to special effects artist Dan Martin, who had a hand in creating those iconic alpacas in the 2019 Richard Stanley film, Colour Out of Space. We also talk about many other projects that Dan has worked on, and please do expect spoilers for many of those. You'll find a full list and what time they are talked about in the show notes, so you can skip to certain points if you don't want to get spoilers on any of those films. This conversation was an absolute joy to have. For the past month or so, I've just been listening to Dan constantly on the Arrow video podcast with Sam and Dan and if you're not listening I say in the episode but I'm going to say it up front as well if you're not listening to that podcast get on it right now it's fantastic and they give outstanding recommendations for films some that are easy to find some that happen to be Arrow titles and others are curios and obscurities that seem nigh on impossible to find, but make it even more fun to listen to. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Dan Martin. Today, I am joined by special effects artist and podcaster, Dan Martin. I feel like I am just treading over what you say <laughs> on the arrow podcast but as we said off mic for the past month or so since we agreed to to do this i've just binged listened to so much of your voice and i think that has come <laughs> dan martin is just ingrained with special effects artist podcast man <laughs> well, how are you, you though, dan? yeah i'm doing well man i'm doing well thank you thanks for having me no worries so yeah before we kind of get into your like how has like you've gone back to work since all the madness in the world yeah man it's been so busy since lockdown i i I think i'm 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 in the lucky position to be working in films of exactly the right size to deal with the post-covid or you know mid-covid post-lockdown situation um small enough that they 
can uh, isolate people well, take the proper procedures, but big enough that they can afford the additional cost that comes with that, with testing people, with like the, the, the quarantine measures and isolation measures and that kind of stuff. So I've been very lucky. Like obviously a few big, big films have, have kicked back off, but like the financial implications of one of those grinding to a halt and the statistical chance of one of those, one of the crew getting COVID, of course, because there are so many more people. So, you know, Batman shuts down twice, Jurassic Park shuts down twice. Like, you know, these are big productions. I remember on uh, Prometheus, uh, Fox were like worried that the shoot was going to get delayed because of like build delays and design delays and that kind of stuff. And the, the number I heard kicking around was that each day of delay would increase the budget by a million dollars. That is insane. So <laughs> imagine having to shut down for two weeks, you know? Yeah, and it's crazy as well. Like, I remember around the time of when the Batman shut down, we kind of had this weird thing in the news as well because we had, it was the height of Tenet being out at the cinema. So you had Warner Brothers with this, like, dual message of being like, we've yeah. had to shut down a production because of Corona. But at the same time, Please go to the cinema, which, like... You, our beloved audience, are significantly <laughs> less valuable to us than Robert Pattinson. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah that, I think that's what, that's what uh, the, the film-going public kind of uh, gathered from that mixed messaging. Yeah. But um, when talking about lockdown, obviously you were involved in Host, which was made at the height of lockdown, am I correct? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, um, it was... So it was just far enough into lockdown that the <clears throat> the message that like certain not essential work that could be done sensibly was still allowed. So I was able to drive, like so not taking public transport, to drive to my workshop and then completely alone, knocking about in this big old space, to design and make the makeups for host. And then they got uh, sterilized, packed away, kept for two days, and then sh like sealed, and then shipped over to the actors. And then on Zoom, I would teach them how to apply stuff. So they had spares for the for the class that we did online. And That's amazing. Was, like hanging out in the background when we shot the sequences on a hidden window, and then as and when I was needed, I would be brought back up into the stream, and I would talk them through the different stages. As a fan of like special features and extras. Is all of that stuff recorded for yes. uh, amazing? I can't I can't wait for like a, a Blu-ray release of host to see all of yeah, it's, potentially it's, all of that that back behind because the the mechanisms of how that would work just fascinate me in the kind of like especially watching it like with like rigs of cupboards like bursting open and stuff like that. It's like like just like my my I could understand how it would work if you had people in the house, but to like teach people to do that is like that's amazing yeah well i mean to be honest <laughs> my my involvement in it was exclusively on the makeup effects mm. side so yeah, yeah. when rob and dougie cox his producer uh decided that they you know that they were able or were approached to do the feature version the way they um they considered it was let's make a list of all of the people we know who can do cool things and work out how we can thread a story around that. So I can do stuff largely remotely. James Swanton, who plays the the ghost for a few seconds, did his own makeup for that um, because he has a background in theatre um, and does that kind of like sort of 
particularly with his interest in sort of the silent German era, cinema mm -hmm. era, um, he can do that sort of Veidt-esque makeup himself very proficiently. But then they're like they've got friends who do stunts, they've got friends who do VFX. So there's loads and loads of um, of really great stuff that they've. Uh, I, I mean, really, it just comes down to the planning of it. You know, the, the, they've yeah. they've they've created a jigsaw. Well, yeah, and there's the um, there's the like the thing with well host specifically. I'm kind of glad it was made when it was made as well because I think for the kind of audience, I'm glad that 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 film is done now. Hopefully, we don't get uh, a spate of kind of lockdown based horrors because it's I don't know like even even now it's kind of like thinking about like the height of lockdown is a bit like. Oh, that was a real drag. It feels years ago. <laughs> uh, yeah, time has lost all meaning. It was a million years ago, and yet it was yesterday. It's very weird. But I, th I think I do think that you know there was a big conversation at the beginning of lockdown about how you go forwards with the creative arts um, post that because it's you know we no one writing during lockdown like you know some professional writer friends were saying you know we're writing stuff now you know. This is a great opportunity to get stuff done, haha. But who fucking knows what the world's going to be like on the other yeah. side of this? Like, you know, do, like, do you just write everything set in the 90s until we've all worked out what we're going to do after? <laughs> like, yeah, it's that. And when is that film actually going to go into production? Because exactly. It feels like there's a backup. We're seeing all of these films that were supposed to be this year are just kind of like Candyman's jumping like a year. We've got things just teeter and teeter and further yeah, and further yeah. back. Um, but obviously, yeah, with, you've had like both ends of it. You've made a film during lockdown and you've had a film come out at least in the, the States and yeah. has premiered at the London Film Festival you worked on, The Amazing Possessor. It blew my mind. It's definitely like uh, up there as film of the year for me. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's an amazing... I, I love the movie. I'm incredibly pleased I got to be part of it. Um and yeah like ev everyone involved was both fantastic and absolutely lovely like the the stereotype of the nice canadian is well earned well yeah i see a lot of uh, interviews with brandon cronenberg uh, specifically and i just when i when i see him talk i'm like i feel like i could have a he he seems so personable and just like he is lovely yeah yeah it's yeah. like that um when when i saw him at uh, the yeah, saw Possessor at the London Film Festival. Immediately, I just put out an open call onto Twitter and said, does anybody, like, know a PR contact for Brandon Cronenberg? More than anything, I was like, I'd just like to interview him because I think it would just be a lovely chat. Um, yeah, he's a but, really, really nice guy. So, yeah, in regards to, I guess, using Possessor as a, a case study of, like, how does a... How, how do you get, get a job, basically? How does it go from... So I've been I've been very lucky in that it's almost exclusively been word of mouth and recommendation for the for the bulk of my career, which is kind of the best possible situation. Like I'm I'm very lucky. Um, the first feature that I designed um, was based on a short that I had done, and I was recommended to the director by a mutual friend, um, and that was Johannes Roberts F. Which uh, and and you know again, you can do great effects on or one can do great effects on a terrible film, and no one will ever see it. So I've been very very lucky 
in the the wagons i've been you know the, the, the in with who has yeah, that yeah. phrase work <laughs> 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 who i've been able to hitch my wagon to you know um so i've done a few films with johannes uh, who directed that um my wife jennifer handorf uh, is a producer and she did a series of shorts for fright fest one of which was directed by ben wheatley and it was through that that i met ben and his producer andy um and andy was one of the producers on possessor so that's how i got possessor but it's also obviously uh, you know i've done so many of the, the wheatley films peter strickland's uh, in fabric i did because of andy was a producer on that um so you know i think it's I take it as a great compliment that these these clients keep coming back. That I'm that I'm you know I get so much repeat custom from these people. But I think that also reflects well on me and means that you know when you when you look at someone's work and you see that they have these ongoing relationships, I, I think that speaks quite well of them. Well, yeah, definitely. And uh, with Possessor as well, it's a film that is being like lauded for its use, and it seems to be in a lot of the interviews that it is all practical effects as well and it seems to be like like brandon cronenberg himself in a few interviews i've like watched or listened to your name has come up time and time again and it's like i think like it is a bit like it's a massive selling point of this of of possessor i, I don't know i think we've got to this point of just so much cg work and vfx to see like practical effects back on screen and the 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 effects that you do as well and there's uh well, they, yeah, there's a few few things in my notes that uh, uh, I, I wanted to 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 um, like ask you about, and uh, I'm gonna go straight in with the juggler on this one. Is uh, all my note says here is Andrea Riseborough's dick? Was that a prosthetic <laughs> or was that a body double? Uh, that was a prosthetic. Um, so uh, I think it might have been one of the very first things Brandon mentioned to me perfect um and then when i got the script it wasn't in the script uh and i was like oh okay you know things change between whatever and then i was chatting to brandon on the phone and he was like oh by the way the dick is still in there but we've just taken it out because some financial p financiers might get a bit antsy about it and whatever and he was waiting to like work with andrew a little bit more and mention it to her to pitch it to her but she pitched it to him she suggested it to him without him having said anything so it was immediately back on the table but what was um hilarious was we had to we had to convincingly replicate uh chris's penis because it was meant to be his (laughs) yes yes. but and she had to sign off on it because she had to be comfortable with how it was presented so basically just sending like fake dick pics across the Atlantic <laughs> uh, to be passed on to the to the concerned bodies, um, and then when we were over there, uh, we put together an all female crew for that for that makeup. Uh, my key effects artist, my key prosthetics artist, Tracy Loder, uh, who was my right hand out there, absolutely amazing person, amazing artist. Um, she headed up the application on that. Um, Sasha Pollock, who's a local makeup artist, um, and her did that um yeah it was amazing i obviously i wasn't i wasn't on set for that i you know i just yeah, yeah. myself away from the application um but it's it sounds like you know everyone took it very seriously but ultimately it was they had a bit of fun with it yeah yeah, yeah. and obviously like as a as a viewer like that is one of like 
especially watching it, knowing I was going to speak to you, I was kind of had that eye of like, what is, what, what would have that like, for a better phrase, what was like, what has Dan's ha- hands been on? Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like uh, no, no, yeah, that's, what, that's why I said for want of a better, but the kind of, yeah, the, the effects, especially the like dream sequences or kind of hallucinogenic sequences. And uh, recently you posted like, uh, is it like a flesh tube? Like Oh, the flesh trench. Of, yes. Yes. That was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Again, like it's such a, it was such a big thing for such a short moment, but I, I think that's, being able to do those things where you, you know, because obviously if you're trying to get a budget down, those are the places you immediately start cutting stuff. It's like, well, this is whatever percent of the spend, but it's going to be 12 frames. So let's lose it. Um, But because we had such a long run up on Possessor, because initially it was going to be shot in the UK and then it was going to be split between the UK and Canada. Then it stayed in Canada. But by that point I was on board and I was incredibly flattered that they, they kept me on, even though it meant, you know, me flying out to, to Canada to do it. Um, and, and so we were able to really like hone what we were doing down to what was important for Brandon to tell the story, but also um, like we, we got to be, we got to present the illusion of frivolity. <laughs> um, so, so yeah, we did get to do some of those those bigger gags, and uh, even if they were only on on screen for a few seconds. And the flesh trench was one of my favourites, just because it's it's such a weird thing to get to make. Yeah, um, yeah. and we did the the little tests, which are the things I posted on on Instagram, uh, and then yeah, the big one. I think. Uh, the director of photography, Kareem Hussein, has the, the, the full-size flesh trench at home. Amazing. God knows what he's doing with it. It is over a metre long. It's an <laughs> absolute monstrosity. Well, and speaking of, like, uh, yeah, people working on the film Keeping Things, recently Brandon Cronenberg wore the uh, Andrea Riseborough mask <laughs> yeah. that, that, that you created uh, to accept, accept an award. So, yeah, what is the kind of process for... Yeah, obviously, I'm just I'm going. Speak to me like I'm an idiot, basically. What is the process to make something like a mask? Is for for that, and like, well, how did that come about? Like, so we had live casts done for us of most of the key casts because they weren't ba- none of them were in the UK at the time that it happened. So uh, we had uh, cast done in America, in over in mainland Europe, in Canada. And we had the negative molds of these life casts uh, sent to us. The life casts were done in silicon. We had the, them sent to us. We poured molten clay into them and adjusted them as we needed to, cleaned them up, and then we molded them for the, for the final molds. So through that process, we ended up with a fiberglass version of Chris. So we had two life casts done, each of Chris and Andrea, um, two of Sean Bean, um, one of the guy who played... Um, uh, Elio Mazza, the the big chap at the yep. in the in the restaurant at the beginning, um, uh, and the reason we had the two done of uh, of the three cast was that we would have a passive, like a sort of at rest neutral life cast done, on which we can sculpt prosthetics and masks and that kind of stuff, and then we had expressive casts done to represent that would turn into puppets. That because they have to be cast with the expression or something at least close to the expression that we want. So Sean obviously had his grimacing live cast <laughs> done. 
<laughs> um, Chris had his uh, his grimace done for the transition, the melt sequences, yeah. um, as did Andrea. And then because we had a, a sort of a reference copy of Andrea there, um, we sculpted on top of uh, Chris's life cast uh, this sort of baggy, distorted version um, of Andrea's face. Uh, Rachel Mao, uh, a young sculptor and an ex-student of mine, was in the in the studio and she took point on that sculpt and did a beautiful job. Um, so yeah, once we've got that sculpt finish, um, it gets molded in fiberglass. Uh, silicon is then injected between the fiberglass life cast of Chris and the fiberglass negative mold of the mask. So it fills that space and creates the mask. Um, I then paint it. Um, uh, Anna Chacon, who's my UK hair tech, punched the hero mask, uh, which is the one that Brandon wore at the awards. Uh, we had two more that I had out in Canada that were punched by, I think, Tanil Shockey uh, did, the, um, did the, the two that we had hair punched out there. Um, yeah, I mean, that's the thing. There's often there's more versions of something than you perhaps realize because you only see one of them at once. Yeah, yeah. But we have the one that, that got torn apart. Um, I'm trying to remember why we had the third one. <laughs> it was a long time ago. Um, but yeah, so so yeah, there's a lot of a lot of processes go into into one thing. And obviously that one got quite a lot of screen time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like those you mentioned the meld sequences where they kind of like transition between each other. They are like I, I don't know how to, like, it is a film that needs to be seen to be believed, I think. And, like, it's got that, I don't know, like, those, those, and there's moments in this film as well that, and it's down to, like, the work that obviously you guys have done that are really upsetting. Like, even from, like, that kind of, <laughs> that opening throat slit is horrifying. Like, it's just, and, yeah, so, like, I guess we'll get into this a bit more on uh, another film you worked on, but the kind of like the the re yeah, what is your research for for stuff for for kind of effects work? Well, it's interesting. Like something like Possessor is so uh, like stylized, mm -hmm. but with anything like the casualty stuff, you really have to ground it. So the the stabbing at the beginning is you know we try to be very clinical about it, but then when you get into the more sort of aesthetic stuff then there's m that's much more about a conversation between brandon and myself and obviously he signs off on everything i you know not just barreling ahead but um but there's a lot of fun to be had in those in the sort of the loose areas where you're you're finding um uh, sort of representative stuff and yeah to talk about a film where it's kind of i guess a lot of research would have had to been done because it's based on real life and Unfortunately for me, I've seen one of the photos that I guess would have been a reference point for you yes. is Lords of Chaos uh, that you worked on. Uh, so, yeah, so with something like that, and again, like some horrific kind of stuff seen on screen, but works to the film. And obviously, yeah, if you are, I don't know, sick in the head like I was when I was a teenager going, what, there's photos of this guy who committed suicide is yeah. is is that like kind of the research you have to do to replicate like stuff like that or yeah i mean on on lords of chaos uh mm -hmm. jonas jonas got us the police reports 
on the on the murder oh, wow. at the end. Uh, obviously, the suicide photograph is is pretty famous because Mayhem used it as an album cover mm-hmm. um, before people like the people printing it didn't know that it wasn't fake. Yeah. Fake, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, I mean, like literally just today, I was sculpting uh, some casualty makeups and I needed a particular type of injury. Uh, which wasn't something that I I just have in my head. Like you know, mm-hmm. the thing is, you you see enough of this stuff after a while, you can you you know you'll touch back at medical textbooks and that kind of stuff. But for the most part, you get a good idea of of what happens to the body under most circumstances. Yeah, yeah. But then when a script comes along that has something very specific in it, sometimes you do need to go and look stuff up. Um, uh, I'm very lucky in that my father-in-law is a pathologist, <laughs> so <laughs> I can I can ask him for um, for advice on stuff and definitely for feedback. Although we often get caught up in that conversation about like film reel versus real reel, because sometimes if it's not if the if the reality of a situation isn't something that the audience would expect, it can take them out of a moment just as much as something that was unrealistic could. So you there is to some degree an element of fine-tuning the depiction of reality to be within the parameters of something that the audience can handle, can expect. Because unless you're doing a forensic TV show, like, you know, like um, Waking the Dead or something, where you can have people literally explain to the audience by mm-hmm. na- by method of talking to each other, oh, well, no, actually, this peculiar-looking thing means this. And, oh, no, you would find this inside the human body, or this mm-hmm. is what this looks like. But for the most part, if you're doing an action film or a horror film or something like that, you can't go presenting the audience with stuff that they that surprises them in that way because it'll it'll take them out of the moment. Um, yeah. So to to answer your original question, yes, I do occasionally have to look at grotesque and horrible things. I am to some degree a nerd, um, but I mean, you know, it's certainly not something that I relish. It's not the not the bit of the. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Like <laughs> that. Like obviously the. The story of Mayhem and the film Lords of Chaos, like, uh, I watched it a second time to do that and just blown away because it kind of plays, it plays weird, doesn't it? Because it kind of has this almost stereotypical, like, lads, like, starting a band at the beginning, but then this dark story that it leads into and, well, like, true to life to some degree story of a tra- like a tragedy of of young men getting caught up in this world of uh, Norwegian black metal like yeah i mean yeah it, it is ultimately a very sad story and i think it's about unchecked naivete mm-hmm. um combined with with some problematic egos and one particularly unpleasant well two <laughs> yes. particularly unpleasant individuals um you know one of them has lived long enough to show that he was just a piece of shit <laughs> yeah 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 yeah. yeah. But, but who knows you know the other kids um you know people go through some dark shit and sometimes they can progress and get better and sometimes they're just a fucking edgelord for life <laughs> yeah 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 like yeah most people it's just i don't know maybe uh kicking in a phone box when they're 15 maybe not so much uh burning down churches but yes uh, i've heard you talk about before the how like obviously the church burnings in uh, Lords of Chaos, how they were achieved. Do you mind? Do you mind? Te- yeah, not at all. The list. I mean, I, I I wasn't there for this. This was right at the end, yeah. but this is something that Jonas told me. 
Um, so Lords of Chaos was partially funded by RSA, Ridley Scott's uh, production company. Um, uh, by Scott Free, rather. RSA is his advertising um, arm. And, um, and they'd just finished shooting the new Blade Runner at the time. And so most of the close-ups of Burning Church are actually the sets from Blade Runner being set on <laughs> fire uh, because that was also happening over in the same area of Europe. That's that that that's a that's yeah that's fantastic like that's I don't know it's a great like I, lo- I love those little insights and like the the crossover from and I guess I don't know uh, Lords of Chaos was a small like definitely a smaller budget film like, like well yeah could it be burn uh, building replicas of churches yeah. anyway to 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 burn them down uh, one one film we've got to talk about i guess uh that i'm i'm quite reticent to talk about is uh your work on the 2011 human centipede <laughs> 2 uh so um how did you kind of get into the sphere of tom 6 and how did you get involved in that project so i wasn't the head designer on that i mm-hmm. was actually called in uh, so a chap who i had worked with very early in my career uh, by the name of john schoonrad who had started out at the jim henson's creature workshop as their uh, head life caster so he ran all the life casts for them back in the day um and i met him right at the beginning of him setting up his own company um uh, and they just moved into wheeling studios uh, and they were taking on loads of different stuff he had done as a designer he was still comparatively new um as a as an art as an effects artist he was kind of an old hand he was one of the old boys like i think his second job was fiberglassing the big boulder at the beginning of uh raiders of the lost ark amazing um (laughs) have i got that that's it is it's raiders that has the boulder at the beginning isn't it yeah Uh, yeah i'm not too au fait on on the uh they all blur into it one might for be, me. It might be, <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's Raiders. It's been a very, very long time. But yeah, he's actually pushing it. He's behind it. When you see that scene, he, <laughs> him brilliant. and um, Kenny Wilson, uh, I was told, uh, were two young mold makers at the time and were, just put, were behind it, rolling it down the studio to give it brilliant. that momentum. So yeah, he'd been around for absolutely ages. He'd like Medusa Touch, and I think he was on Life Force. Like loads and loads of really great stuff. Um, but as a designer, he had just done the fourth Rambo film, Rambo or John Rambo, depending on what country you're in, um, which obviously had loads of really fantastic like gore stuff in it. Um, and he had just landed the uh, second Human Centipede film, and he. But then another job came in, like a bigger job, because uh, Second Human Centipede wasn't vast. And he phoned me up and said, "Do you want to come in and run this for me?" And I think they'd made like. They'd made the the fake bums already, <laughs> yeah. and they'd done a bunch of the live cast, but that was about it. Um, so I sort of came in and in his studio, kind of ran things, and then ran everything on set. Um, and it was an absolute like hoot. I had a great great time with it. Um, really early on, I said, and I forgive me, I know you've listened to a lot of the podcast recently, so you may have heard this. Already, <laughs> but, um, really early on, I said to Tom. Um, it would be imprudent of me not to. I don't want to talk us out of work. Certainly, don't want to talk John out of work. But um, I feel like a lot of this stuff's going to get cut. Like you're not going to be allowed to show this stuff. Uh, and Tom was like, "Well, that's the whole point, you know." The kickback on the first movie was, you know, after it became a cultural phenomenon, like 
a lot of people online were like, oh, it's not actually that gory. Oh, it's really, you know, once it's just the idea. So I'm going to give them the most fucked up film ever. I want it to be like unwatchably vile. And I was like, oh, like Salo. And he's like, yeah, like Salo. <laughs> so that was it from then on, like in for a penny, in for a pound, just make it as fucking horrible as possible. Perfect. Well, yeah, there's a thing. And I guess it's a lot of film fans. So like I, with stuff like Salo and, and this, as much as like I was reticent to watch it, there is... I'm plagued with this morbid curiosity at the same time. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, I, ma- I imagine you're somebody who possibly suffers with this too. And it's like, yeah. I, I, not just to like see, and I guess working on something like this in an effects uh, standpoint must be a blast, right? Because there is so much kind of, I don't know, gore and grimy stuff to kind of, that you need to have a hand in to do. And like, I, is, is it, me, I just need to get this off my. It's all in black and white, but it's the poo in brown. You, yes, that is correct. Yeah, 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 yeah perfect. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and actually, it's the uh, for the for the solid shit in that film. Um, uh, it's the recipe. There's Pasolini's recipe from Solo. It's the same. The same recipe. Perfect. <laughs> so yeah, you well. I hope you don't mind me saying it. you were you were kind enough to send me the uncut version of this film, uh, so I could get every. Well, as you said, I probably wouldn't have seen many of the eighty percent of, of our work. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> if if I had watched the, the the cut version, which I I now own on DVD with uh, some limited edition postcards that I guess will <laughs> never be sent to anyone, <laughs> um, but. Yeah, there's a few, but my notes here just read like the, like the book that the uh, main character would have because it's kind of the. <laughs> I, I just kind of, uh, I don't possibly just to show how mad I, I sound. Uh, my notes read as sandpaper cock, hay, uh, caved in head, teeth, knee, tongue, poo, baby, barbed wire cock. <laughs> Yes, uh, that's yeah, that's that's a pretty thorough list. Yeah, I'm trying to think. Is anything I missed out? Uh, wristlet, but that probably that feels kind of uh, run of the mill compared to the rest of it. And so, in the cut version, how much of how much of that is gone? <laughs> well, originally, um, the BBFC returned uh, a verdict saying that it was impossible to cut it, and they just wow. couldn't release it. Um, and so, like. A big deal, a relatively big deal, was made of the fact that it was the first film banned by the BBFC since whenever, mm-hmm. and the BBFC re- resented this comment and <laughs> said, "We haven't banned it. We've just said that it is un- impossible to give it an 18 rating." The myth will be printed, yeah, 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 exactly. And also, there's not that much difference. But um, then, uh, yeah, the people distributing it in the UK went away and, and hacked at it and actually managed to get it to a place where the BBFC said, yeah, you can release this. I think the argument initially was that they felt that it wasn't possible to release a coherent film once it had been that heavily cut. But they did a, you know, they, they managed it. And, um, uh, and yeah, and that's the version that's out in the UK, uh, which is a shame, I think. It played on Carter Fright Fest. Um, but unlike America, we don't have that sort of fetishization of um, of freedom of speech in mm-hmm. our art, and therefore we don't have the unrated versions. We don't have uh, 
all that kind of stuff, which seems silly, but. So, um, I, I don't, yeah, we're, we're, well, let's kind of backtrack a little. Yeah, how did you first start off in, in effects? Like, wh- what was your first job and. Or, I, or... I mean, my first, my first job, paying job was, uh, was a photo shoot for Cradle of Filth. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Um, I was uh, in Camden uh, visiting a friend, uh, my friend Tony, who we mentioned on the podcast quite a lot, uh, who used to have an amazing shop in Camden called Psychotronic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was kind of an amazing like go-to place. I met loads of cool people there. I almost got a job on a trauma film because I bumped into Lloyd Kaufman in Tony's shop. Perfect. And... Obviously, if you if you mention to Lloyd that you do makeup effects, he's like, "Well, now you have a job." <laughs> <laughs> um, so I almost did um, Schlock and Schlockability, which was a James Gunn script that never never got photographed. Wow! I still have a copy of the script, um, and then I almost did an earlier version of Poltergeist as well. But um, Danny was in the shop buying an original John Wayne Gacy painting that Tony had. As you do, um, yeah, of the of four Disney characters, uh, like a <laughs> sort of little uh, montage picture painting that he'd done, and um, and I got chatting to him and his production designer Phil Bertham was there, um, uh, yeah, and they had a they had a photo shoot coming up and they needed some stuff making and I was like so young, <laughs> um, I must have been like sixteen, seventeen maybe. Wow. And I was, I mean, you know, I was saying I'm an effects artist. I wasn't an effects artist. I was a kid that wanted to be an effects artist. Um, and I, you know, I went and I did a day of photo shoot stuff. It was all direct application makeup. I don't think I made anything in advance, like maybe a couple of little bits and bobs mm-hmm. here, but it was all like builds, like sort of latex and tissue paper and wax and that kind of stuff. Because it was stills, it didn't, that didn't matter so much. Um, and, you know, I'd been... Up until that point, I'd just been doing stuff on my own short films and and with messing about with friends, um, and yeah, like I the gap between that and my next like proper paid job was quite big, like mm-hmm. you know you you just keep doing it and if if it's something you love, it's you're doing it even if you're not being paid, and eventually someone will pay you. <laughs> what what were the films that you were kind of like watching as a kid that like kind of you first started to notice like effects work and go oh that's something i want to do like i i didn't see like when i was really young i just didn't see that many movies we didn't have a mm-hmm. tv at home for for quite a long period of my life we didn't have a vhs player um for a, for a while um but then as soon as we got one i was just consuming absolutely everything that i could um and then as soon as i met that one like you know all genre fans remember of, of a certain age. I think it doesn't matter this much anymore. But around my age and older, every genre fan remembers the first time they met someone who could get hold of the uncut versions of things. You know, so nowadays everything's online. Like you can, like you can either legally import the unrated Blu-ray of Human Centipede Two, or it's on any number of unsalubrious, you know, sites. Um, and the you know, I, I met this uh, this Scottish chap called Sandy, who a friend of mine. I must have been. How old was I? I must have been like sort of fourteen, fifteen, 
uh, and he lived in the same block of flats as a friend of mine. And uh, and he had Tenebrae, Anthropophagus Beast. <laughs> uh, what else? Like, n- like not a vast number of films, but like they were de- certainly things like I'd never seen before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then the the other side of that was that my I don't have godparents, but the the friends of my parents who would have been my godparents if I had godparents, the aunties um, and uncles, yeah, exactly, lived in uh, Amsterdam, mm-hmm. and so me and my family when I was quite young would go to Amsterdam relatively regularly, um, but you know just like family family stuff. But it meant that when I turned sixteen, my parents let me just go to Amsterdam on my own with my then girlfriend. <laughs> And obviously what I did was take a spare bag and just go to the video stores. And I came back with like Driller Killer and Cannibal Holocaust and all these things that you just couldn't get in the UK at the time. So, yeah, I mean, I was just sort of consuming as much of it as possible. The thing is, by that point, I was already very much aware of the fact that I wanted to be an effects artist. That that stemmed back way earlier. Like when I was sort of like eight, like maybe a bit younger, I was into magic um and special effects when i found out that it was even a thing felt very much like magic but you know for another purpose to (laughs) to another end um i saw the movie of pet cemetery when i was quite young that must have been an early one um i watched the cook the thief his wife and her lover pretty much endlessly because it was one of only (laughs) three tapes in the house so i'd set my alarm for the middle of the night and when my parents were asleep i could just come downstairs and and watch the cook the thief his wife and her lover again (laughs) Not that it's got a huge amount of effects in it, but yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I think the kind of the comparable thing of like finding films that, whereas yeah, I'm I'm possibly slightly younger younger than you. Uh, that my thing was taping something off the TV, and then the tape would run, and then you would get the film afterwards. So that I think that's where like my kind of and sometimes you wouldn't get the whole film depending on how long oh torture how long the tape was but then it would be it would be kind of seeing like the start of Hellraiser or something like that when I was far too young or there being an, like an age gap and like my brother and sister being five years older and kind of being like well we're watching this like you're gonna have to sit in the room anyway because we're looking after you and it's like. Okay, like and and it's time for Texas Chainsaw Massacre. (laughs) Yeah, or like even even stuff. I remember like just really young memories, and I guess it's something like something that's talked about at the moment as well is uh, Nicholas Rogue's The Witches. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, because of the remake. Yeah, yeah, and um, I remember like I think that was like one of the first films for me where I was like, "This is terrifying," but then that. I think it's where that like morbid curiosity came from in films is that thing of it's terrifying, but at the same time, I really want to watch it. Yeah, and what like, a delight. Yeah, what are those? What are those kind of like? What is that on her face? Like, you know, like, and how? And obviously, that is or well, that that was Henson, right? Who did the? Oh my goodness. Uh, yeah, I mean that sounds right, but to be completely honest, <laughs> off the top of my head, I don't know. A quick fact check, and it was in fact the Jim Henson workshop that worked on Nicholas Rogue's 1990 The Witches. It was also Jim Henson who managed to persuade Roald Dahl to let Nicholas Rogue adapt the film in the first place. After seeing Nicholas Rogue's previous films, Roald Dahl thought they were just going to be 
too dark for a child audience. And perhaps he might have been right. Amazing. Uh, so you got a cover on Fangoria with um, the girl on the third floor. Which... Yeah, like I got a, I got, I'm in the the little cell, the film cell on the corner. Like there's still still buckets on the list. <laughs> well, like at least your the the creature you created was the cover, oh, right? Yeah. Uh, no, no, no. Like so, that was the us was the cover. Oh, I'm sorry. The cover, and then they have the little film strip down the side, mm-hmm. and I'm in no way demeaning what a big deal that was. For me. <laughs> so that was huge, but you know, I still have goals. <laughs> but yeah, that was that was great. That was really nice, and you know, to be featured in it um, was was an absolute delight. And they, I've been interviewed by them since as well, so I've had a, a like an actual article about me as well. So that was like that's yeah, two definite big boxes ticked. Amazing. Well, that's like it's the yeah the effects work and that are. Uh, is is great like that that woman with the rope around her face is yeah is terrifying i've spent the last week i've I've spent like many people for october trying to watch a horror movie a day and kind of cramming in the prep for this whilst doing that as well and it happens to be this week uh the rest of the people who live in my house have gone away for the week so i've just (laughs) kind of got this like month's worth of horror in my in my head and then yeah, then that now now I'm alone, and like I think that's one of the films that's really stuck with me is uh, the girl on the third floor. So, what was it like to work in a quote unquote real haunted house? As... No, I mean, no. I'm afraid <laughs> I'm uh, I'm I'm on the cynical side of things there. Although I did uh, rather maybe unfairly um, enjoy. Uh, trolling some of the more uh, credulous members of the crew <laughs> by uh, asking asking them leading questions about the uh, their their emotional experiences in this haunted house. Air quotes. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's just it's just a house, it's just a house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, but what's that? Yeah, what was the experience of working on that film? Because there's, as I said, there's that great like creature design on. Yeah, he's a, he's a woman with uh, rope. Yeah, and- yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, it was it was a weird one. So I got contacted um, about that one because so I basically I got that job off the back of Lords of Chaos. So uh, Travis Stevens, who had been a producer for a while, for for a long while, and before that was a sales agent. So, but you know, done his time in the industry. He was getting to direct his first feature. Uh, he when asked who he wanted to do the effects, he said, I want the guy who did Lords of Chaos. Uh, and one of the producers on the movie, who's based in the UK, said, oh, yeah, I know Dan. <laughs> I'll, I'll just get him on the phone. <laughs> um, uh, and we chatted. We clicked pretty quickly. Uh, I did a couple of little tests. And they were like, we fucking love this. Um, and I, I got the job. I uh, didn't get to meet any of the cast ahead of time i had some photographs um i got some head measurements for our creature performer um Mm -hmm. but all of that stuff was sculpted without ever having seen her uh using generic live casts from my library um but it's it's an interesting one it's it's a lot of people love it um and that's that's awesome like it's really nice but it was surprising that i got like that the first thing that really got that kind of attention was essentially one i'd done on my own like myself and Anna, who I mentioned, who did the hair work on um, the UK-based hair work on Possessor, that was just the two of us. 
like she did the hair punching for the mask for the girl mm-hmm. um and for some of the other pieces and then everything else like normally when a job comes in it's big enough that i have to have in other sculptors or mold makers or whatever i i paint almost everything myself but otherwise it, it becomes like and i'm all over everything like i'm a horrible micromanager but <laughs> um but but you know it's very much a team sport but with that one that was just us like the two of us doing nothing else like she she she's got experience outside of the hair punching as well so she did a bit of mold making for me did a bit of seaming um but yeah it was an unusually like it was a really small one and then i got over there and i was living in an apartment with travis and uh courtney and hillary Anderjar, who were the production designers and who are incredible um and uh yeah we were living like a minute walk from the like diametrically opposite at the crossroads from our haunted house um it was yeah it was absolutely brilliant and like yeah there's some other great like effects in that film whether it's like the peeling of the skin or the the like pulsating like living wall like yeah the latex membrane wall (laughs) yeah which is like and it's a film that is kind of like i don't know it's oozing with goo like it's like something yeah like like yeah like i like now I'm I'm kind of a bit hesitant to kind of like go near any plug sockets or like like if I see a marble I'm a bit like oh fuck, that can <laughs> that can piss off. Being a Nicolas Cage podcast, the one thing I do have to talk to you about, obviously, is Color Out of Space. What was that experience like and working with the magical Richard Stanley. I mean, magical is very much the right word for Richard. Uh, I said earlier, I'm a cynic, but I think if anyone is actually magical, it's probably Richard. Um, yeah, he was amazing. Uh, everything. like, And he obviously clicked with Nick beautifully. Like, their, both their, their forms of magic worked very well together, and they got on very well together. Um, I, I'd seen uh, Hardware and Dust Devil... Uh, when I was quite young, um, Tony used to have some of the props from hardware in his shop in Camden. So I see them on the reg, like a big fat guy whose eyes get drilled out. He had one of those heads in the, <laughs> uh, in, in the shop. Um, yeah, I mean, that was, that was absolutely, uh, like super, super exciting to get involved in that. And Richard was really nice. It was great to work with, um, really open to suggestion, but also really like, like, like if you met him briefly and you and he wasn't like and he wasn't talking much like you know just his general demeanor is definitely one of an acid casualty <laughs> like he, you would be mm-hmm. forgiven for thinking that he wasn't like you know maybe very sharp anymore but actually he's like a fucking razor like he knows exactly what he wants and he's so so switched on to to all of the minutiae that go into into what he's doing well yeah the rare times you see an interview pop up with him or uh, the fantastic Lost Souls documentary about yeah. Island of Dr. Moreau. He is just like on it, and it is this kind of thing that he's drifting off to this other planet, but then it's like he knows what he's talking about, and it's always fascinating. Uh, and I guess I'd be remiss not to ask you about the alpacas. Uh, how 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 were they created? Are they miniatures? Are they were they? Yeah. So we had uh, two different scales of alpaca. We had a one to one full size uh, mechanical puppet. Uh, of sort of neck up mm-hmm. uh, and then we had three more uh, of the same puppet but without all of the mechanics in it for just like filling out background shots when you get those dirty like over the shoulder shots of the characters coming into the barn um, we had uh, several that you could blow up 
that they could have pyrotechnic charges inside their skulls. Um, we had one that had already been blown up, but we sort of artworked a bleeding stump. Uh, and then we had the, the, the multi-alpaca, which was done at a quarter scale uh, and was the sort of the writhing mess that you see yeah. for a moment in the barn. Um, and then we also had some one-to-one segments that would for when Nick is, is letting off the shotgun. So we had some body panels, some individual legs that could be shot out, that kind of stuff. And there's that, and then there's that kind of uh, back of the pickup truck full of like animals as well. That was that 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 would have been you, right? Like, well, actually, no. <laughs> that was that was kind of uh, sprung on us and ended up falling to the art department. So a lot of that stuff is is just from a butcher's. Although, oh. if you look, uh, if you if you <laughs> cast your eye across it, and I wasn't there for that day, if you cast your eye across it, the placeholder for the cat. So when the when they when they're driving back and they see the cat briefly in the road. So that's a digital paint over of a physical puppet that we did. And it was always going to be the way. We had the, the puppet so they could f- film something so that you could see the light the lights travel across yeah. something that the, that the VFX team would then animate more. So we had a sort of a uh, like front three quarters of the cat on a mm-hmm. stand that could be used as a photographic element. That cat body ends up in the back of the truck. So you do briefly... <laughs> <laughs> see it completely free of any cgi in the back of the truck perfect and uh yeah uh one last thing before i let you go dan is to talk about the the like the melding of jolie richardson and uh julian hillard's characters uh it, how how was that put together is that is that a mixture again of cg and yes yeah, yeah yeah I, this was this was un, unlike possessor this one does have a lot of of cg sort of like stitching Mm-hmm. Uh, stitches in glue um the the shot of the meld that is closest to being entirely practical is the overhead shot in the attic um when the final stage mother son hybrid scuttles across the floor and the only digital work on that shot is removing a puppeteer that's operating the back leg um so it's terrifying stuff. <laughs> and thank you, thank you very much. Uh, yeah, that was really, really fun. Um, that's a that's a massive puppet um, worn by a creature performer called Lucy Ridley, um, who's a sort of dancer, movement artist, um, generally like fantastic and very limber person. Um, she's inside it. She is. Its front arms are higher arms with extensions. Its side legs are bunraku pulled to her legs so her real legs were sticking out the bottom of that creature but those two legs are um mechanical hips and hinges for the knees and um, mechanical hips and knees and its feet were, were connected via poles to her feet so when she stepped it stepped um then tom tui who was my roboticist on that one was operating the replica of julian's face that is in the back of that creature which you do see very briefly in the film (laughs) so he had a little mechanical puppet of julian's face in her back um and then dan goma another one of my team um was following behind uh rod puppeting the last the, the back leg the very very back leg um so yeah that was all all uh quite a quite a to do (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> perfect well uh i'll yeah i'll let you go dan uh it's been amazing uh chatting to you uh where can people find you online if they want to see what you're up to and where you are um uh on both twitter and instagram i'm at 13 finger fx um it's yeah 
it's occasionally photographs of my work as and when I'm allowed to share it or when something's about to come out. And it's just me constantly retweeting anyone saying anything remotely nice about me. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then it's lots of pictures of my dog and occasionally being cross about things. Perfect. Uh, there's one last thing I should probably ask you uh, that people would want to know is obviously there has been recent news that Ben Wheatley will be making uh, yes. the, the Meg 2. You obviously worked on uh, 47 metres down. Is there any chance in the future that you would like to maybe do some more shark work? I mean, man, I'd, I'd jump at the chance. <laughs> I, I got to make bits of live action shark for 47 metres. Mm -hmm. Like, I, I got into the industry too late to make full puppet sharks. Yeah, yeah. They're too, too easy and to do very well digitally because they move through water that's like you know a weightless object is what cg is really best at um i quoted on making a full puppet robotic shark for 47 meters down and like it came with the heavy caveat that i knew they weren't going to go for it <laughs> but god i'd love to do that um uh i mean ben ben is very familiar with the efficiency of balancing practical and digital he has a background in vfx himself so i can't imagine i get uh I'd get, even if I were on it, I don't necessarily know that I'll get to do it, but if I were on it, I don't know if there would be a practical shark. But whenever a shark physically touches people, that's when you need bits of shark. So, you know, fingers crossed. And who, who knows how big the Meg in Meg 2 is going to be. Exactly. Uh, to do or, some metre-long shark teeth. Or even if it's a shark. I heard recently someone say that apparently the book it's based on, it's a kraken in the sequel. So... I mean, fuck, I would, yes, <laughs> I'd give my eye teeth to make a Kraken. That would be amazing. Perfect, Dan. It's been amazing chatting to you. Uh, to everyone listening at home, if you don't listen to the Ario Video podcast, change that right now because both Dan and Sam always have amazing recommendations and will hurt your bank balance massively. <laughs> <laughs> Dan, thank you so much. Thank you so much, man. It's been an absolute joy. And there you have it, guys, my chat with Dan Martin. Uh, I could have gone on for so much longer with Dan, uh, and I, I, pr I probably would have. Unfortunately, um, time ran out for us. Uh, Apologise if it sounds uh, rushed at all at the end. I think um, I kind of got panicked because Dan said he was running out of time, and then I was like, oh, no, uh, and kind of like just, 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 just had my usual kind of mental meltdown that I tend to do about most things, but it was an absolute joy. Yeah, there's there's so much to um, talk about with Dan, and he's worked on some fantastic project projects. A lot we didn't get to talk about. Um, there's a whole career of a chunk of his career where he was making films with Ben Wheatley, doing some of the effects for that. And yeah, I'll drop Dan's IMDb uh, page in the show notes as well so you can you can see all of that but uh hopefully at some point in the future dan will be back on the podcast we discuss something off mic so that will be an absolute joy if that comes to pass and in the spirit of the arrow video podcast i'm going to give you two recommendations based on color out of space uh one of them happens to be an arrow title and deals very much in the body horror and it's somewhere down the lineage of H.P. Lovecraft, and that is Brian Usner's 1989 film, Society. 
Uh, I won't tell you much about it, but yeah, you can find that on Blu-ray through Arrow or you can get that through the Arrow Video uh, channel through Amazon Prime or on Shudder at the moment. So definitely check that one out. And the other one is actually a recommendation I got from the Arrow Video podcast. And uh, Dan said on that that it was a influence on Nicolas Cage's performance in Color Out of Space. And that is Matango, the 1963 Ishiro Honda film. Uh, which is titled on Amazon Prime at the moment. If you want to search for it, uh, it's on there for free. It is Attack of the Mushroom People. Again, it's a fantastic kind of body horror tale with some hallucinogenic imagery and just people going stir crazy on an island. So you very much can see the through lines between that and Colour Up Space. If you want to keep up to date with the podcast, with upcoming guests, films, and special interviews like this, please do follow me at Caged In Pod on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you want to kind of like just have a chat, please do come over onto Twitter. We're always like there's a good community of people. We're always kind of having a, a chat about films, uh, Nick Cage or otherwise, just kind of opinions and stuff like that. And it's yeah, it's a it's a it's a fun fun uh, community. And you can always get in touch by email, which is cagedinpod at gmail dot com and if you'd like to support the podcast you can do that in various different ways but one of them is real simple nice and easy is rate review and subscribe on apple podcasts that really does help get the word out because this could be somebody's favorite podcast they just don't know about it yet other ways in which you can support the podcast is patreon.com forward slash caged in pod or you can go over to caged in podcast limitedrun.com to get one of the limited edition superman caged in prints which was designed by previous guest and fantastic comic book artist tim hornsby so as always guys i have been petrospatsilibus i have been caged in you have been amazing catch you next week bye-bye Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is presented by the Breadcrumbs Collective, home of the Pod Charles Cinecast, Caged In Coppola Connections, A Drooptown Limery, Maine, Franchised, and many more to come. Our shows are all presented ad-free and made possible by listeners like you. Please support our shows by subscribing, leaving ratings and reviews, and becoming patrons at patreon.com. If you'd like to learn more about Breadcrumbs, head over to breadcrumbscollective.com. Breadcrumbs. It's more than a podcast network. It's family.